Number three, three cosmic messages, second quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're starting lesson three, the everlasting gospel in the quarter three cosmic messages. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator. Dave is going to offer the opening prayer. Loving Father God, we thank you for another opportunity to come together and study your word, get to know you better, and to study the good news, which is the good news about you. Ask that you would be with us, guide us in our discussions, be with Dr. John as he leads us and keeps us on track. Help us to remember always that the gospel is the good news about you, a loving parent who wants desperately for his children to come home. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So we're in the third part of a series on the three angels' messages, and the title is The Everlasting Gospel. And I suspect we probably have all just sort of assumed that we understand exactly what that phrase means. But a friend of mine who happens to be a major evangelical scholar actually has written a commentary on Revelation of about a thousand pages. So it's one of the top five in volume that's ever been written. And he has a different idea about this everlasting gospel. So let's read the text first and then explore what he does with it. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. What I understand him to be saying, Gregory Beale, is among other things, he notices that the three angels of Revelation 14, 6 to 12 have many similarities with the three woes of Revelation 8, 13. He notes that the recipients of this gospel in 14, 6 are the same as those that approve of the beast in Revelation 13, 7. Well, he sees the parallels there. Further evidence is that the other two angels bring messages of doom. Why should not this message also be a message of doom? He also points out that it isn't the eternal gospel, it's an eternal gospel. Normally in the New Testament, whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ is mentioned, it's with an article, the gospel. And so he has drawn the conclusion that this is probably not a gospel message, but a proclamation of doom on the followers of the beast. Now, such a reading would certainly undermine a core emphasis of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which isn't reason enough to avoid his position. But what do you think? What evidence would you see in the text of Revelation that suggests the everlasting gospel is a positive rather than this proclamation of doom? I think we've always taken it for granted, but now we have to defend it. So help me defend it. What would tell you that this is, in fact, a proclamation of a positive message about God? In life, without quotes, negative feedback, we would get ourselves into trouble in a hurry. So God is giving in the second and third angel's message some quotes, negative feedback, but it's a loving warning. In the first angel's message, the angel is calling people back to worship the creator. And that's a definite positive to understand and worship God as he truly is. Okay. Arthur, where are you joining us from today? I'm in London. I was going to first maybe ask a question. 
with regards to your friend and his observations on revelation, whether he is making that observation based on the Greek reading of the text to say it is not saying that it is the everlasting gospel, but an everlasting gospel. First part of my question, then I'll comment. Yeah, he doesn't make too much of that, but he does point out that it's not a definite article here. Some have suggested, well, it's a first reference to the gospel, and therefore you wouldn't introduce it with the gospel, which would be pointing back to the past. But actually, there is a prior reference in chapter 10, verse 7, where the mystery of God is proclaimed, and it's the verb for gospel, euangelisai. So evangelism comes from the word gospel in the Greek, and there's a verb form that's used in 10.7. It's also used here. So he's just simply trying to point out there's a number of things that give him pause that this is actually the final gospel proclamation that we would find, say, in Matthew 24 or, or other places. That's fine. Then my comments would be to say, I don't know whether that would be a good observation on my part, to say when I read that this message is being proclaimed to the whole world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, to me it seems this message has to get to all people. I'm not so sure whether if it was bad news, as it were, there would be this eagerness to spread it to every place, to every language, every tribe, if it was a mess. Of course, we can argue that maybe a message of doom also has to spread everywhere, but I feel like it's a positive picture that I'm getting, that this is a message that has to go everywhere. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Larry? I have been reading a commentary with its own translation from Kevin Hopkins in a book that he just wrote called Revelation. And he's a Nazarene pastor teacher, and he uses the word an everlasting message. And when I check Phillips and Berkeley and a couple of others, they use good news rather than message. And I'd never really caught that there was a difference. So I am intrigued by the idea that he's presented here because at least one other evangelical scholar has come up with that same idea. Although Hopkins doesn't call it bad news, he does just use the phrase, an eternal message to mm -hmm. proclaim. So for whatever it's worth, your friend is not the only one. Yeah. So the word here, gospel, is the noun form that is commonly used elsewhere in the New Testament for the gospel. And the verb, proclaim, it's not the usual word for preach or proclaim. It's the verb form of gospel. So it's the gospel. He has an eternal gospel to gospelize to the world, to give out as good news to the world. And that both of these have the EU prefix in the Greek, which means good. So you add that to almost any word, and you could have a good word with the eulogos. So you're giving a positive message there. Here you have the gospel is a good message that is given. So I wonder if he isn't underplaying the value of that double good in this verse. All right, Henry. First of all, I will say, why is he talking about three different messages? The verse starts saying that another angel that has an eternal gospel, I will ask how many gospels are eternal? That will be the first question that I would like to ask. Second, I will say that it doesn't say that there are three different messages. It's one message that three angels 
expand on each other. It's only one message. And we have seen that as the message of the three angels and not the three angels' messages, because it's one extended. And I don't see it as a message of doom. Three messages of doom is a message of reality. It's a description of reality. So I am not threatening anybody. When I say to the patient, I'm sorry, according to all of the labs and the images, you have cancer. That's not a message of doom. It's a message of reality. It's a description. And it will depend if I see the doctor telling me that, or if this is the funeral home telling me that, right? So that will be my approaches. And if this is God telling me the description of reality that is going to happen, then I won't consider this being the funeral home giving me the message because now I see the doctor diagnosing properly on time. And it's a good news because then there is time to act. Mm -hmm. So I don't see here the complications levers with the A before the gospel or with the definitive article. To me, all of this is good news because it is good to have a diagnosis right on time. Mm -hmm. All right, Bill. I'm looking at this and it says, I saw another angel flying in mid heaven with an everlasting gospel for the inhabitants of earth, for every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people, semicolon in my version. Then he cried out loud in verse seven, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. That was quote unquote on that. It seems like that is an eternal gospel. It seems like that's what it was referring to. Well, the content sure. is in verse 7. Yes. And you would see the content as a positive call. Yes. So that would be further evidence. Okay. We're doing a good job of exploring the text for information that will help us with what we're looking at. All right, Rita, go ahead. I had a thought about this. I was just looking up because I made myself some notes about two years ago now, and I was looking at this. And I looked at it, and I thought... These three angels' messages, this whole passage looks to me like a series of consequences. So in verse 6, we've got the eternal gospel, which is God's character, has been revealed. Through all of what we've been shown here through Revelation, God's character has been revealed and God has been vindicated. He's the one that's been in the dock. He's been judged by all his creatures, if you like, and his character has been vindicated. So Satan has lost his case and he's had to drop his case. But for those who choose not to believe this truth about God, the consequences are serious. But those who are proclaiming the everlasting gospel, who are living for God, must hang on in there and keep up the good work because it's the new earth hasn't yet come. So to me, it's a message of hope for those who believe, and it is a message of doom, if you like, for those who don't believe, who deny the character of God. And you do have the word judgment in verse 7, which biblically does have that the two edges to it, doesn't it? Larry? Interesting conversation on this. And if we go back and put ourselves living in this time frame, when we are experiencing persecution that most of us who've grown up in Western culture have not experienced for being Christian. But we put the context of how when they stood up and professed what they believed, 
they put everything at risk. So in the context of your friend and in what Kevin Hopkins has suggested, I see that there's no dichotomy. God's character is being revealed because he died to preserve free will. And the description that goes on through the rest of Revelation is the description of what happens to those who've made, I'm going to call it the correct choice, and those who've made the incorrect choice So the people there who are being persecuted, who may die sometime during the coming week because of what they believe, that yes, both sides are going to get their reward, and that reward is what they have chosen, and I think was was suggested in last week's lesson, that it's the free will and God's allowing everybody to make that choice. All right, and since judgment has come up, I think the evangelical community is split on judgment, part seeing it more as retribution and some new voices and increasingly powerful talking about judgment as revelation. There's a difference between that. Is the purpose of the judgment retribution to punish those who are on the wrong side, or is the purpose of judgment to reveal the characters involved, reveal the truth of the situation and the truth about God? It's interesting that judgment is ambiguous here in verse 7. It's the hour of his judgment. In the Greek, that can go either way. It can be the hour of God's judgment of the world, or it could be the hour when God is judged. And with the concept of revelation, either way, I think works well in the passage. All right. Verse 6, it talks about the eternal good news. And that eternal signifies about God. He is the kind of person you can trust. And that makes a whole lot of difference to me. All right, Henry? Talking about the judgment part, it is the same John in one of his letters that describes that when you know the truth and that you love, you can be in judgment with no fear. You can receive judgment with no fear because then you understand that this is not a judicial judgment. It is a timely diagnosis that uh, gives you the opportunity for getting back to health. And uh, also, if we continue with the same conversation of chapter 14, when we just read that the time of his judgment, chapter 15, describes the result, the verity of that judgment. Very nicely, chapter 15, the continuation of this message, chapter 15 of Revelation, uh, verse 3, says, Sorry, I opened the Bible on the Spanish. So I'm switching right now quickly to the English part. And it says, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. So it seems like the jury is giving the verdict. Just and true are your ways, King of Ages. So why does anybody have to be given that verdict about God if he is not the one being judged? It's not talking about describing the human beings. So to me, that is a nicely continuation. The time of his judgment has come, and we have the verdict here just a few verses ahead. And you'll be interested to know that while it's ambiguous in Revelation 14, 7, in Romans 3, it talks about God being judged. And there it's not ambiguous that there is a judgment in which God is the object of the judgment, not just the subject of the judgment. And so reading Revelation 14 in that way is not out of character for the New Testament. All right, Arthur. 
I'm trying to reflect on how my experience maybe in the Adventist church previously when these verses were read or people were preaching from these verses. At one point, it seemed a bit contradictory to say, on one hand, we are told it is the eternal good news. And then in the next sentence, there is this picture of a God of wrath coming to judge people as in to meet out judgment and punishment, punity. There was a sense in which preachers really didn't see it as contradictory to say we are saying it is good news but this good news is about how this god of wrath and a god who is harsh is going to do terrible things to you so there was that disconnect while we are saying it's good news we are not really explaining how the next part of the verse is good news then now you made reference to romans 3 and, and i'm not so good with verses i'm assuming that's the same verse that says god will be seen as just when people judge him when i got that other side, it suddenly made sense to say it is good news. The hour in which people can understand who God is has come. And even if I were to go, because we said it is ambiguous, even if I were to still to use the other side to say God is judging us, it's a bit different for me now. Because if I understand the character of God and I'm saying this is the hour in which he is judging me, it's still good news because I know he is making an accurate assessment of what I am, an accurate assessment of everyone else from a perspective of a person that loves loves all of us and all that. So I just wanted to reflect that maybe there's many people who are still reading verse 6 and verse 7, and they cannot just connect how the good news in verse 6 connects to the judgment in verse 7, as well as the other verses that talk about Babylon is fallen and all. Well, I mentioned that evangelicals are split on this issue of retribution versus revelation. And Adventists tend to be split as well. I think many would see the judgment as God setting the record straight, putting people in their place, etc. Whereas seeing it more in terms of revelation. And if you look at it as revelation, then both the character of God and the character of humans can be revealed in the context of that judgment. As I mentioned last week, I'm studying right now the latter part of Revelation 20. And in verse 12, it talks about the book and the books. Uh, There's a book in which are the names of the saved, and there's the books, which is the record of human actions. And it dawned on me recently as studying that the book of life is not about us. The book of life is about God. It's about the decisions that God has made as to who will be saved and who will be not. Those decisions were made long before the final judgment, when everything's revealed to us. And so the final judgment then is a revelation of God's decisions and God's actions, and we get to evaluate those at that time. But the books, plural, of records, those are talking about us, what we have done, and they are the content on which one would pass judgment both on human beings and on God. So I think there's an interesting tension there between the hour of his judgment as God judging the earth but also the hour of the judgment of God. That ambiguity may be deliberate because John often does that to show a tension between two sides to a story. All right, Livius. I just had this thought while everyone was talking. The judgment is in the context of these three angels, and one and three are presenting two choices. You have worshiping God, who is the creator, and then worshiping the beast, the third angel. There's two decisions to be made. Who do you worship? 
And I wonder if that's the judgment that is being made here, that is being talked about. When we choose to worship one or the other, we have made a judgment. And I'm kind of reminded of Elijah on Mount Carmel when he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. That has that kind of structure here in the three angels' messages. All right. Thank you. Let's go to number two. And the lesson wants us to go to the origin story of Revelation, right to the beginning of the book, and see if that will help to clarify what this gospel is all about. In a sense, while the lesson wasn't addressing Beale's perspective, the lesson is designed to show us as much as possible that this gospel is the positive message about God and the good news that we have thought it was in the past. Let's go to Revelation 1 and verses 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. All right, so this is Revelation's origin story, you could say. It arose at the throne of God in heaven. So this is a message from God mediated through Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that once again, Revelation is ambiguous. This seems to be a Johannine feature, both in the gospel and in the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ can be a revelation from Jesus, or it can be a revelation about Jesus. And it is not 100% clear which of those it is, and perhaps John intends people to come away with both, because it's clear that it's the revelation from Jesus because he's the one delivering it to John. But in verses 4 to 6, it's also clear that the message is about Jesus. So let's take a look at that. And four to six is in plain language. So while the rest of Revelation may be difficult to understand, here we get some plain language in verses four to six. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priest, serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. I like to point out in this text that there's a triple trinity. It's a very interesting feature of it. It's, first of all, the one who is and was and is to come, which seems to be a reference to the Father and the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ. So you have a trinity of persons at the beginning here. And then it says, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So you have a trinity of actions here, what Jesus has done. And then, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and his Father. You notice there's a trio each time. You have the one who is, was, and is to come, the Spirit, Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ has qualities. He's the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, and then 
as a series of actions. He loves us, has freed us from our sins, has made us to be a kingdom and priests. So this is as close as you get to plain language. Doesn't call him son of man, doesn't call him lamb. It's speaking directly about Jesus Christ and God the Father and so forth. So what implications does this plain language have for the eternal gospel? Henry. I just love the way that John is referring to the readers, to the seven churches, because he's offering not threats, not doom, but grace and peace from these three heavenly divine people, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. There is no threat from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So that's to me right there reassuring God is coming and is coming with good news, grace, and peace. This is free. You can be with no fear. And in support of that, Henry, as we noted last week, you follow through in chapter one and you end up with a place where John collapses in fear and Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. Uh, there's no reason to be afraid of me. John is afraid of having seen Jesus, but is immediately reassured. And David Owney, he wrote perhaps the largest commentary ever written on Revelation, three volumes in the Anchor Bible Dictionary. But he loves to point out that this scene in Revelation 1 has many, many parallels in the ancient world. The idea of a divine figure showing up and the person collapsing on the ground and then, you know, don't be afraid. It's not unique simply to this place in the Bible, but it's a pattern that can be seen often in the ancient world. And it's a way of assuring people here that there's no need to be afraid of God in Christ. All right, John? Continuing to read Revelation forward from chapter 1, you note the contrast between this verse, who is and who was and who is to come, with the the beast. In chapter 17, verse 8, it says, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to ascend. Mm -hmm. The contrast is between God and his adversary. Jesus is the faithful witness, but there is also an unfaithful witness as as well. So when you recognize the contrast, Revelation starts to unfold as a revelation, a book of revealing. Well, that was a very, very powerful connections there, John. Really appreciate that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Dan? Words that sort of disturbed me in this thing. And so I've been looking at several versions. One is where it says, then that man shall drink the wine of God's fury. In Philip's version, it says passion, which I like better. And then the other word that bothers me, it says poured undiluted into the cup of his wrath. I think for a lot of people, that word wrath has a really negative connotation. But I think that we have talked about God's wrath in the past or something very similar to that. And God's wrath probably can be translated God separating himself. And that when God separates himself for the final time from those people who choose to say, we don't want to associate with you anymore, that final separation will be God's wrath. And it seems to me when that happens, then the effect of that will last forever. And I think that's what the rest of the verse says. And so I think some of the language is really quite dramatic and maybe even overstated at times for modern people. But I think one has to look at 
at least for me, those two words, fury and wrath, and maybe look and translate that like J.B. Phillips said about passion and then understanding what God's wrath is. And then the whole thing makes great sense in terms of the everlasting gospel. Yeah, scholars do tend to talk about hyperbole in relation to the book of Revelation, that it often is over the top in the imagery that's used. For example, you know, the blood up to the horse's bridles and reaching for a couple hundred miles and things like that. And so perhaps we should not be disturbed if it occurs here. And definitely hyperbole is frequently used in the Old Testament as well. So it's not a judgment on inspiration or anything like that. It's using human language. God is utilizing human beings to express things in ways that human beings will connect with. Even apocalyptic, the book of Revelation, was a common style in the ancient world. Both Jewish and Gentile had apocalyptic types of books. And we definitely have apocalypses today. The whole Marvel universe, you may or may not have heard about, there's just an endless series of stories and movies, etc., that are completely imaginary, that are about the universe and conflict and all of that. So the story of Revelation is maybe not as foreign today as it might have been a couple hundred years ago, because uh, apocalyptic style is increasingly common in the popular culture as well. So God works through human sources. And one other piece, I've mentioned this story before, but when we visited En Gedi in Israel, and we came to the ruins of a temple, and it had two apartments and a fire pit outside the building, and looked a lot like what the temple, you know, the tabernacle would be like. And I asked the Adventist archaeologist who was with me, I said, how old is this temple? And he said, 3000 BC. And I almost dropped on the floor because that's well before the Mosaic tabernacle. And so I think we should see God utilizing the resources that are there to communicate with human beings at a point that they can understand. Wrath is another type of thing that communicated in that time. And automatically assuming that it is some kind of mindless rage. You know, somebody totally losing it is probably not the right way to read that term. But since Revelation 14, 9 to 11 is going to be the subject of future lessons, let's hold that discussion for later on and dig deeply into it at that time. All right, Michael? The book of Revelation is composed around 95, the Common Era. And that was during the reign of the Emperor Domitian, who persecuted Christians severely. So I've often wondered, how much did this influence the book of Revelation? Because, like you pointed out, masses of blood and flowing and so forth. And being a Christian during that the reign of Domitian was a dangerous, very dangerous proposition. Well, it's interesting that John probably came from Ephesus to Patmos. And at that very time was under construction, the temple of Domitian in Ephesus, which John would probably have walked by almost every day because right in the main street of town, and you can see it there today, the ruins of the temple of Domitian are right there. So it's a very live kind of thing. And if John is on Patmos as a prisoner, which is a strong possibility, and certainly the early church fathers believed it to be the case, if he was there as a prisoner, then that context would have to be very much on people's minds as they read the original book of Revelation as it came to them. All right, Nancy? 
Dr. John, I have a question. Those texts that you showed us, that was new to me, a very plain talking of Christ in Revelation. To me, it's like a window that you brought us of clarity in Revelation that the words are not guarded, as Jesus said. Can we relate it to what Jesus said in John 16, where he said, I've been using guarded language, but now I'm going to speak plainly about the Father, and it was like a window of very important clarity. And when you mentioned this window in Revelation, I wondered if the two could be helpful to each other. Well, what I've often said is that if you can't find Jesus in a particular text of Revelation, you probably haven't read it carefully enough yet. And what I've sometimes done is to show Jesus in the fifth trumpet, which is perhaps the most horrible place in the entire book. But I believe that when you understand that text rightly, it has something to say about Jesus that is very special. So, yeah, to always, as you go through Book of Revelation, ask the question, is this particular passage a revelation of Jesus Christ? And in what way is it so? Uh, that's what the plain language tells us. Is you're going to see a lot of stuff here that's going to be confusing. Keep in mind, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the one who loves us and who has saved us, and who has made us kings and priests. That's the subject of the book. All right. Just to go back to your question a short while ago, what does the origin chapter, the beginning of chapter one of Revelation, tell us about the gospel? Verses five through to six actually is a summary of the gospel. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness witnessing about God, the firstborn of the dead, that's how he witnessed about God through Calvary, the ruler of kings of the earth, which is the result of Calvary, he's elevated to the highest name, to him who loves us, first of all, so God's love comes first and frees us from all sin and made us to be kings and priests serving his God and Father, which was the mission that he gave to Abraham to be a blessing and Israel was to be a nation of kings and priests. So John summarizes the gospel in those two verses in a marvelous way. And that's got to impact the way we understand gospel in chapter 14 as well, I think is the point. Yes. And notice after the initial trinity of persons, there's a trinity of qualifications. It's about who Jesus is. And then there's a third trinity, and that's about what Jesus does. So it's the revelation of who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and his connection to God, because it's clearly stated in verse 1 that the revelation of Jesus is what God gave him. So he is representing God in everything that he is doing in this book. Henry? I just would like to make a comment that I will feel a little bit uncomfortable mentioning that God takes his grace away at that time. I think that the revelation the description of reality and allowing us to choose what we want, even if it's not good for us, that's a total demonstration of grace. Because God has the power to change us, to force us to live forever with him. But grace is to let me go if I don't want to live with him. Because he is the one losing. He is the one seeing his loving children going away when he has offered the options to live forever. So he is not taking his grace away. He is demonstrating that to the most because he can easily avoid that to happen. But that freedom is what 
shows more what that graph means, which is not any similar to ours. And I will align that to some ideas that I have been reflecting. It may be heresy, but I need to work with this. And if these are good news and are eternal, should be good news for everybody, for the ones that choose to live with him forever or for the ones that choose to do not live forever. And to me, those are good news for them as well. And let's see who is giving the good news. The good news are being given by that and that wants all of us to be safe. The good news are not being given by those that are lost because the ones that are lost will be receiving what they want and they will be happy with that because they will never be happy living forever with God. So it is good news for everybody. You took us in a surprising turn there, Henry, but I think it's a very important one because in a sense you're saying, I'm going to be miserable in eternity and God says, I have good news for you. You're not going to have to experience it. Yeah, that's an exciting perspective to add to things. All right, let's go to number three. That's a good segue to number three, where take a look at a couple of classical gospel texts in the New Testament and just refresh our minds on what the good news actually is. And first is 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 1 to 4. And here's where Paul says, without question, I'm telling you what I've heard, what I've passed on. This is the gospel. There is no other. So 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 1 to 4. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Also verse 5, please. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. All right. So here, Paul uses every word that's associated with the gospel in the New Testament. What I received, what I handed down, what I preached, the means by which you were saved. You can just see, as he's trying to make clear, what I'm about to say is everything. All right? This is the central thing, the one thing above all else to pay attention to. And what is that? It says he died, was buried, was raised, and was seen. So his expression of the gospel is four things. But notice that only two of them say, according to the scriptures. He died, according to the scriptures, and was buried. He was raised, according to the scriptures, and was seen. And so I think what becomes obvious there is the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The burial is the evidence that he did in fact die, and the scene is the evidence that he did in fact rise from the dead. So the gospel is not the burial and the seeing. The gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying what matters most to us is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The question is, why is that important? What is it about the death and resurrection that changes everything? And that's the place where Christians can be not divided, but they simply have different explanations. And that's where you get into theology of the atonement. But the lesson is asking us, 
not to get philosophical at this point, but to go to a couple of other definitions of the gospel that Paul makes. In other words, let Paul explain Paul, explain what is happening in the gospel. And the first text is Romans 3, 24 to 26, which Paul has also stated his gospel. Romans 3, 24 to 26. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. This text tells us that it's by grace, and it would suggest that maybe grace is never at any point where it's set aside. Grace means we can't do it. Grace means we don't deserve it. Grace means it's God's choice, not ours. It's through Christ, and Jesus Christ is the means by which this reconciliation comes. And then it's by faith. In other words, through our trust, the grace and the Christ becomes active to us. Notice verse 26 once more. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. All right. So the eternal gospel is more than just about us because eternal means it was there before we showed up. So there's something about the gospel that's more than just saving human beings from sin. And Paul describes it here as he did it to demonstrate his righteousness, demonstrate who he was. So an aspect of the gospel that transcends merely saving us from sin or forgiving our sins, that element is an element of shining light on the character of God. And that's part of the gospel as well, central to the gospel. And therefore, the death and resurrection of Jesus has something important to say about the character of God and demonstrating that. While we have that, let's just go back to Romans 1. This is not in the handout, but it just occurred to me that this would be important here. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. All right, there's that term. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, here comes definition, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's the same language we saw in Romans 3.26, that the gospel is a revelation of God's character, and that transcends merely the human needs that we often associate with the gospel. Romans 3.26, well, it was mentioned in the lesson, but as I read it, I said, whoa, you really need chapter 1, 16, 17 as context to fully grasp that. One more text is Romans 5, 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right, so these texts then draw out how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is gospel in the sense for Paul that not only is there salvation from sin through grace 
through blood, through faith, etc. But there's also a revelation of who God is, of his character. And I think texts like these lie behind the statement that Graham Maxwell is famous for. And you'll find at the bottom of page two in your handout. And it's that the good news is God is not the kind of person his enemies have made him out to be. Arbitrary, unforgiving, and severe. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. God is just as loving and trustworthy as his Son, just as willing to forgive and heal. Though infinite in majesty and power, our Creator is an equally gracious person who values nothing higher than the freedom, dignity, and individuality of his intelligent creatures, that their love, their faith, their willingness to listen and obey may be freely given. This is the truth revealed in all the books of Scripture. This is the everlasting good news that wins the trust and admiration of God's loyal children throughout the universe. Would anyone like to comment on the gospel as expressed in that way? Arthur? I find that Graham's definition is comprehensive and deep and broad. There's a sense in which, whether in the evangelical circles as well as in the Adventist church, when we talk about gospel, it becomes a superficial motive maybe to say we focus on the same verses that we're reading it's so interesting that there's a way to read them in another way to say maybe someone will focus on the death of christ and for that person what is important is that christ is redeeming us maybe from this wrathful god who is almost about to destroy us and that's how they read but i think now when we broaden it now to say it's all about the character of god and then maybe we also tie in somewhere Paul says we are like in a theater and the universe is watching as if we're in a theater and the whole universe is watching. There's a sense in which we need to pull out a lot of verses to come up with a more complete picture. So it's a beautiful message when it is said in this way and it appeals to everyone and anyone. But now maybe the last comment will be I find that it takes a lot of time for someone to have this picture. All these other perspectives are just, you don't need to study or maybe try to connect a lot of things. You just read the verses as they appear to you, and that's just it. That's just it. But now, when we now say, maybe even I love Hebrews 1 verse 1, where Paul also talks about that in, in various ways, in, in diverse times, God has spoken in the past through the prophets. But in these final days, he has spoken in the Son, where Paul is saying the final revelation of who God is like is more completely revealed in the person of Jesus. Yeah. So there's a sense in which we need to see it as a story that began with the prophets trying to reveal who God is, and it culminates with the person of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. All those things, when we look at the cross, we have to say, what is the cross telling us about the character of God? Otherwise, if you just look at the cross just as it is, we may come up with a wrong perspective. We're looking at the cross, yes, but what is the cross saying? So we need to deliberately ask, what is the cross saying about the character of God? And I appreciate your perspective very much. And in raising Hebrews 1, you're raising a text that one could argue is maybe stating the purpose of the whole Bible. And that purpose is God seeking in various ways and various places to reveal himself a little here, a little there, and, and ultimately in his fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And so the author of Hebrews seems to see that as the key point of the whole Bible. Because Old and New Testament are kind of summarized in that text, aren't they? Larry. This idea is so powerful that people who truly are Christian, not the worldly and the lost, people who claim to be Christ followers are hungry for understanding what the cross says about the character of God. So I think that it's very important, this idea of what is the gospel? How is it? And I love how Ellen White has said that Christ came to reveal the character of God, and that was the purpose of his mission. It's amazing the impact that that has on people. Yeah, I think combining what you said with what Arthur said, I think both points are important here. I would say the narrative is very compelling in and of itself. But as Arthur pointed out, when you try to lay it out in more detail, it is complex. And, you know, people who are tied into a more narrow view may find the narrow view more appealing when they realize that this bigger picture has a lot of moving parts to it in order to be fully understood. So the narrative can be compelling. And, you know, rather than try to prove it, simply say, here's the way I look at it. Kind of like what Graham did in this comment here. You give this beautiful picture and, and people say, wow, I would like to know more. But when it comes to the details, et cetera, there is a lot of complexity there. And not everybody will have the patience to come to that understanding from more than a superficial level. All right, Nancy. In answer to your question about what this picture, this gospel means to me, for me, it's such a key point and sheds such light on all my years of growing up and hearing many sermons and school week of prayers and in so many pieces of these moving parts. And to see that the consequences of this bigger picture results in a freedom from, as Graham worded it, it's just fantastic that the consequences bring freedom and dignity and individuality to his created intelligent creatures, which opens the door for the universe. And it's something else that helped me is that book that you helped put together on conversations about God, that this gospel restores God's broken family. It's simple but profound, because how many of us have experienced some breakage in our families? It's painful. It's awful. And then God himself had a broken family, not just on this earth, but in the universe. And so this picture, to me, it's just so key compared to the small picture I started with in elementary school. It just builds on it. And it's marvelous. So, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that testimony. It's very powerful. Uh, Let's go to number four and read two texts there. First is Revelation 13, 8, and then 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20. And all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. The foundation of the world, that sounds like eternal to me. And again, it's a reference to the cross, as is what happened before the foundation of the world. So further evidence that the eternal gospel here is the good news about God, not a proclamation of doom. First Peter 1, 18 to 20. 
You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. All right, so once again, you have this gospel has a past, a present, and a future. That means it's much bigger than simply rescuing human beings, but it has to do with the entire scope of universal history. Now, let's come back to Revelation 14.6. This is number five now, Revelation 14.6, and notice the extent of the gospel message there. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. As we've looked at this everlasting gospel broadly in scripture, we come to see that it's much bigger than simply this earth. But in its context, verse 6 is focused particularly on the human situation and the potential impact of that gospel on the human situation. So the question I have for you, how can such a worldwide mission as we see here be accomplished in today's world. How would you see this message about the good news about God? How is that going to become the center of focus in the entire world? The promise is there that it'll go to every nation. How do you think that might happen in today's world? Sean? Just some speculative thinking here. If indeed we understand God meeting humanity where humanity needs to be met in all corners of the world, through all cultures, throughout time, would it be fair to suggest that he is able to use scholars like your friend that you have been referencing to here in this study in his precise work and in the emphasis that he has going, even though he may not be speaking precisely like we think ourselves and or other dimensions of culture and they're being exposed to a variety of ways in which their spiritual condition can be made more healthy. And I go back to something that you have mentioned various times that has helped me so much that when I speak with individuals, I attempt in my own way, John, to ask them, how has the Holy Spirit been at work before I arrived? How has the Holy Spirit been at work with you in your setting? So I guess all I have to say that in an attempt for him to finish this attempt to bring about the good news to the entire world, must we not concede that he is doing that in a variety of ways that we may not presently recognize? And I hope the answer to that is yes, by the way. (laughs) Thank you very much. Excellent speculation. Appreciate that. Yes. I've been following with all the photographs from the new James Webb telescope. And some of you, if not all of you, will realize that the scientists are striving to see far enough back in time through the light emitted by stars to see the Big Bang. And I just wonder what man will find through increasing technology. What will the James Webb telescope see? If it saw something that didn't prove the Big Bang that proved creation, for example, what effect would that have on the world? Would it make people sit up and just think a little bit? 
Okay. Interesting suggestion. Yes. Sherry. Sadly, I think sometimes it takes crisis to bring people's attention to really thinking things through deeply and making big decisions. And sometimes through crisis, those decisions can be made fairly rapidly. And so I suspect that we will be facing some pretty big crises during which things will come into focus more. Yes, I think that is a very, very strong point. A speaker came to Loma Linda a while back and just asked the question, what is the most memorable thing that's happened in your life? And nearly everybody wrote down either September 11 or the assassination of Kennedy. And he says, here's my point is that memory is triggered by trauma. In the context of trauma, memory is enhanced. And he says, that's why tests are good for a teacher, because a little bit of trauma actually brings out the best in those students. And so I think your comment is very relevant to what God will need to do to get people's attention. Arthur? I've just moved into the first world, and I find that the culture is different. You know, people are not so open to religion and all, while back home, it's so easy to set up a tent and have meetings and preach at any time of the year. And at least you always have an audience to come and sit down and listen to whatever you're saying. But I also want to mention that whenever people would preach where I come from, Matthew 24, 14 will be mentioned. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations and then shall the end come. But, you know, it's so interesting how this verse is interpreted during that time, uh, because most of the preachers, when they say as a witness, they mean that because we have come to you and set up this tent for two weeks, and you heard what I said, and you decided not to accept it, that's the witness part, that we did come, and you didn't listen to me. But now I would like to think that this, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness of God's character, of who he is. God can maybe come to a conclusion when he has revealed everything about himself. Then he can bring the end to come when all the evidence has been brought. I like to think also this can be similar to what happened to the Jewish nation, maybe where we see the gospel now being extended to the Gentiles because Christ himself has come in human flesh. So all the evidence has been given to a point where God says, if I've done all this and they are not accepting the message, then maybe let me let them go and let me open up the avenues to other people who accept this witness. So I'm just trying to marvel at how in Africa, evangelism, like setting up tents, is so easy to do. But at the same time, I'm afraid that maybe it is not the character of God that is being presented during those meetings. People are just saying, I need to do this as a witness that I came to you and you didn't listen to me. So there's an age to compel people to, to accept the message. Often, which is not about the character of God, it's about joining this system, the correct system. If you join it, then you'll be safe, something like that. So I believe God is going to open more avenues for people to learn more about his character. Person might be saying, Well, I preach to you so my conscience is clear. It's almost a selfish motive. <laughs> yes. All right. Our time is just about up. I see three more, and then we'll draw things to a close. 
Very briefly, in the notes, it says under number one, you know, Mitch is a major evangelical scholar, the one we talked about earlier. Just wanted to get the name. If anybody listening to the class wanted to look at the book or the commentary, is there a way to maybe put the link in or maybe just read it right now? Oh, yes. Uh, The name is G.K. Beale, B-E-A-L. I know him as Greg, and he's written a commentary by Erdman's a publishing house of about a thousand pages on the book of Revelation, easy to find, easy to purchase, and well worth it if you're interested in Revelation, absolutely. And uh, the other one I mentioned is David Owney, who has a three-volume commentary in the Anchor Bible. And the, the interesting thing, the two of them are quite different. Beale is clearly coming from a believer's perspective, and so he's made certain commitments, and he's trying to support them as he goes. Aoni, on the other hand, comes in a very, how shall we put it, open-ended, kind of, well, wherever the text leads. And interestingly enough, he often tends to come to more Adventist conclusions than Beale, even though he's not coming from an Adventist-type believer's perspective. So that reading both of them can be quite constructive, to the, the two different perspectives. Is that he spelled? A-U-N-E. Yeah, it's Norwegian. Thank you. All right, Larry. What I have discovered is the willingness on part of people to hear the idea that God is not the way his enemy and the vast majority of the world views him resounds strongly with a huge segment of the population. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. All right, Rita, and these will be closing words. Verse 6 of chapter 14 says it's the angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. So angel being a messenger from God, I don't think we should be specifically looking to specific human agencies to do that work. God has many ways of proclaiming his message to the world. It might be through a Christian denomination or many or none. It might be actually in the way the secular world sees things. In the final event, when we have to choose between one way and another, it's all of that evidence, wherever it has come from, um, if it has come through God's messengers, whoever or whatever they may be, is what we will make our choices on. Final word here from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, where I think Jesus articulates how this gospel will go to the world. He says there, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. The interesting thing is it's not in every translation clear like this, but the verb here is make disciples. Even go is not a verb, it's a participle. So the the key verb of this text is make disciples. How do you do that? One by one, one book at a time, one podcast at a time, one conversation at a time, and leave in God's hands the bigger picture that can result in the outcome we see in Revelation. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for another study a sense that you have been with us, that what we have come to collectively is much more than any of us brought today. We pray that you would continue to be with us in the week to come. For Jesus' sake, amen.